Is that better? Like you couldn't hear me before, right? But I am going to begin by asking you guys a question. I know, that's a shock, right? But here it is. What is the most important question you've ever been asked? It's kind of interesting, right? And for some of you ladies, maybe even some guys these days, that question may be, will you marry me? Right? I mean, a question like that can lead to a life-changing event. Maybe not, depending on the response, right? Or maybe, maybe you're thinking about something completely different. Now, for me, I recall this was a number of years ago. I was interviewing for a job, job with a very large corporate uh, company. And I'd made it through the first interview with the hiring manager and I made it to the second interview with that same hiring manager and I made it to the third and final interview and this time with the vice president of North American sales for this global healthcare company so I mean I'm nervous of course right I mean this is my first shot at a job in corporate America up till then, I've been working in healthcare on the clinical side. Now I'm looking to move into corporate America. And the interview is going well. I mean, as far as I could tell. And we're getting towards the end. It's been almost an hour now. And this vice president, he closes this folder that he's had in front of him. He sets it aside. He looks at me and he says, I just have one more question for you. And how you answer this question will have everything to do with whether or not you get this job. And I'm like, whoa, no pressure, right? And in my mind, I'm like, what in the world could he be asking me? He looks me in the eye. He says, are you a Bears fan? <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. This is, this is the question? And then I'm thinking, is this a trick question, right? Should I be a Bears fan? Should I not be a Bears fan? How do I answer this question? Questions. Questions, friends. Every day we are asked questions. And yeah, most are rather mundane. You know, questions like, uh, what time is it? Or, or what are we having for dinner? Although that one can cause a little bit of angst, I suppose. But then there are other questions, friends, that have long-lasting consequences. Even lifelong consequences. But friends, none are more important than the questions that Jesus asks. So today, we're going to conclude our series of messages on the questions Jesus asked. And if you've been with us over the last couple of months, you know that we've been studying, oh, just a handful of the 307 or so questions that Jesus asked as recorded in the New Testament. And what we've learned through our study is that these questions 
They were not only asked of the people of Jesus' day, but they are recorded in God's word for us today, for us to ponder. And in many instances, these questions demand a response from us. And it is our responses to these questions, friends, that have long-lasting consequences, even lifelong consequences. But most importantly, most importantly, friends, our responses have eternal consequences. How we respond to these questions will determine where we spend eternity. And we know that we will spend eternity somewhere, right? And you know, it's, it's, it's also my prayer here this morning, friends, that, that this doesn't end with the conclusion of this series. No, I hope and I pray that as you study God's word, as you study it on your own every day, like we all do, right? Remember, it's a sin to lie. But as you study God's word on your own or in a group, look for those questions. Pay attention not only to what Jesus is saying, but what he's asking as well. Stop when you come to a question. Ponder that question. And if the question demands a response, consider what your response is. Now, if you're with us in the very beginning, you remember that we began our study with a question that Jesus asked very early on in his earthly ministry. The question, who do you say I am? And it's a question, friends, that we all must wrestle with, that we all must respond to. And how we answer that question has a dramatic effect on how we answer all of the other questions that Jesus asks. Now, over the Easter season, as we've considered Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, it's become clear to us that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. He is God himself. The evidence is irrefutable. Today, we're going to look to a passage of Scripture that contains another very important question. And this is one of the very last questions that Jesus asks of anyone. It happens to be Peter. And the question is, do you love me? Do you love me? So our scripture is found in John chapter 21. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. The question proper, or questions, as we'll see, is found in verses 15 through 17. But we're going to consider almost all of the chapter as a whole for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is we want to understand the context in which this occurs. But we also want to look at chapter 21 because it's a little bit of a head-scratcher for some scholars because there are some who believe that this was not included in John's original manuscript, that it was added sometime later. And as evidence to that, they point to the end of chapter 20 in verses 30 and 31 where John writes this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Man, that sounds like a great summation, right? And a great ending for the book. But John writes a whole nother chapter. And if we pay attention to John's literary style, what we see is that this isn't really that unusual for him. If we look towards the end of 1 John chapter 5, in particular verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Bam! Another great ending, right? But John goes on. He keeps writing for at least another eight verses. So really, John is the typical preacher, right? He has a great ending, but he keeps going. He doesn't know when to stop. But seriously, John writes this for a very good reason. See, chapter 21 really closes the loop on Peter's relationship with Jesus. And it teaches us a very important lesson about each of our relationships with Jesus as well. So chapter 21 begins at verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So John, he writes... He writes, after this. So really it begs the question, well, what is, what is this? What is John referring to when he says, after this? Well, if you roll back really to chapters 18 through 20, what we see is the story of Jesus' trial, of his death and his resurrection. And I want to bring our attention in particular to Peter, and the other disciples, and how they react to these circumstances. Now, if you're familiar with Peter's story, what did he do in chapter 18? Don't flip back there, but what, what did he do? Anybody remember? He denied Jesus, right? He denied even knowing Christ. And this was on the heels of his claims at the Last Supper that he would die for Jesus. He tells Jesus that even if all the other disciples fall away, I will never fall away. And yes, all the other disciples, they do abandon Jesus. And just as Jesus predicted, Peter denies him three times. And what Luke tells us in his gospel is that after that, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Peter wept bitterly because Peter had failed Jesus. Yes, they all had, but Peter wept bitterly because of his shame and his regret. You ever failed Jesus? I have. I have more times than I care to admit. And I think if we're all honest here, we will say that we have all, at one time or another, failed Jesus. 
But what is it that we learn from this passage? There's something that I want us to see here. This is very important. Yes, Peter and the disciples, they are failures. And I'm sure that they were all filled with shame and regret. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus sought them out. Jesus came after them. Jesus pursued them. He didn't give up on them. He went looking for them because Jesus wanted a restored relationship with the disciples and with Peter. And friends, what Jesus does for Peter, he wants to do for each and every one of us here today. He has not given up on you. Despite your failure, despite your sin, despite your past, the living Jesus is here today and wants to restore your relationship with him. The other thing that I want us to notice here is where this all happens. We're back at the Sea of Galilee, back where it all began. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, but it's the Sea of Galilee, same place. And I want us to understand that this was an incredibly confusing and difficult time for the disciples. I mean, think about what they had just been through. In the past week and a half or so, they'd seen their rabbi, this, this, this teacher, this man that they've been following for three years, they'd seen him be unfairly tried and scourged and, and beaten and tortured and then hung on a cross to die. And yes, they had seen the resurrected Jesus, but they still could not comprehend what it all meant. See, they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit yet. So the Holy Spirit had not yet opened their eyes to the total truth of what the resurrection meant. So they're back in Galilee. Back where it all began. Why? Now, some people say they were running away. Running away. Running back to their old life. But actually, that's not necessarily true. Because if we look at Matthew and Mark's version of the resurrection, we see that Jesus told Mary, hey, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. He told them to go to Galilee. So really, they're being obedient. Even in their confusion, they're being obedient. And then John, in the following verses, he goes on to describe how it is that Jesus revealed himself to them. And this is a beautiful story. So here they are. They're at the Sea of Galilee. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, we don't know why Peter said that. Some speculate that he was going back to his old life. We don't really know. John doesn't tell us. Could be that they were bored. And then you go fishing, and then you're even more bored. Because that's what fishing is, right? Boredom. I kid my fishing friends. But maybe they were bored. Maybe they needed some food. Maybe they needed some money. We don't really know because John doesn't tell us. All we know is that Peter said, I'm going fishing. Some of the disciples said, yeah, okay, we'll go with you. So they go out in the boat, the boat, and this is probably the very same boat that they had fished from previously before Jesus had called them. And they go out and they catch nothing. 
And then at daybreak, they head back towards the shore, and they see this stranger on the shore. Now, it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him from a distance. And he shouts, hey, yo, guys, catch anything? You got any fish? The response is real simple, no. He says, hey, drop your nets on the right side of the boat. There you're going to find some fish. Well, they got nothing to lose, so they drop it on the right side of the boat. And they catch this huge haul of fish, so, so large that they really can't even pull it all in. And now John, John, who is the brains in this group, John starts putting two and two together, right? He says, I've seen this movie before. And friends, this should sound familiar to us as well, because it was only about three years ago that Jesus did the exact same thing. In Luke chapter 5, we read a strikingly similar story about when Jesus called his first disciples. And John, John, he figures it out. He says, it is the Lord. And Peter, ah, I love Peter. He doesn't even think. He just jumps in the water and starts swimming. He says, if that's the Lord, I want to be by him. This is an incredible lesson for us right here, friends. This is an incredible lesson for us. Because when Jesus is pursuing us, we go toward him. We don't run and, and hide. We don't go the other way. We don't hide in our shame and in our regret and our failure. No, that's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, right? When Jesus pursues us, we go toward him despite our sin, our shame, and our failure. So Jesus takes them all the way back, back to where it all began. This very well could be the same shore that he had called them on some three years prior. And in verse 9 it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And John, John, he makes mention of a charcoal fire. There's a point here. Let me ask you a quick question. How many of you have ever sat around a fire? Maybe camping? You know, cooking some hot dogs or some s'mores or whatever. You know, when I was growing up, our family did quite a bit of camping. And even today, even today, the smell of a campfire can bring me back to those days. I can remember camping with my family. See, our sense of smell can evoke memories. Some really good memories, it can also evoke some bad memories. So what do you think Peter thought when he smelled that charcoal fire? Well, when was the last time John wrote about Peter standing around a charcoal fire? Does anybody know? When he denied him, right? Peter was standing around a charcoal fire with others warming themselves when he denied Christ. And I have to believe that when Peter smelled that fire, it just, it just reminded him of his failure. Took him back that horrible moment when he denied Jesus. 
So what is it that keeps reminding you of your failure? Is there something in your past that you just cannot get over? Something that you cannot seem to forget? Something that causes you shame and regret? Something that tells you you're no good? You're not worthy of God's love or his forgiveness? Friends, let me tell you right now, that is simply not true. That is simply not true. And Jesus is going to point us to the truth here. The other thing that I think is really, really interesting is the fact that Jesus not only sought out the disciples, but he keeps on serving them. He keeps on serving them. Verse 12 says, he said to them, come and have breakfast. You know, Jesus, he could have sought these guys out and he could have said, you idiots, what are you doing? You left me when I needed you. He didn't do that. He seeks them out and he serves them. He continues to care for them despite their failure, despite the fact that they'd abandon him. He continues to serve them. And then in verses 15 through 17, we get to the questions that Jesus asked. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Man, there's a ton to unpack here, but I want to start with this. Jesus here calls him by his full given name, Simon, son of John. He doesn't call him Peter. Where did Simon Peter get that name, by the way? Where did he get the name Peter? It's from Jesus, right? from Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells Simon, from now on you are Peter. What does that name mean? Rock. And Jesus says, upon this rock, in other words, upon Peter, I will build my church. But Jesus doesn't call him Peter here. Kind of a subtle reminder that he hadn't been very rock-like recently. I also want us to to, to understand the difference in the Greek words that are translated love here. See, some some commentators, they tend to downplay the differences, but I I think that that they're there on purpose. 
See, the first two times Jesus asks, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agapos. Agapos. And we know agape love, right? We've, we've studied agape love, and we know agape love to be a, a, a sacrificial love, a selfless love, a love that on our own, we really don't have the capacity to, to express. And when Peter responds, he uses a different word. He uses the Greek word phileo. Phileo. Which is, which is a, a, a wonderful kind of love, but it's more of like a brotherly love. Phileo. But then the third time Jesus asked, do you love me? He then uses the word that Peter's been using. He uses the word phileo. Something in the conversation kind of sounded something like this. Simon, do you love me with the highest love possible? Do you love me more than these? By the way, who's these? The other disciples, right? Because remember what Peter did at the Last Supper. He said, even if these guys fall away, I will not fall away. In other words, kind of saying, I love you more than these guys. And Jesus says, Simon, do you love me with the highest love possible more than these other disciples? Lord, I love you like a brother. I love you to the best of my ability to love. Simon, do you love me with the highest love? Lord, I love you like a brother. Simon, do you really love me like a brother to the best of your ability to love? Lord, you know all things. And you know that I love you like a brother. See, what, see what's going on here? Peter is now humbled. Peter has humbled himself before Jesus. And he's relying on Jesus' knowledge of everything. He's not boasting anymore. He's not boasting anymore about how much he loves Jesus, how he loves Jesus more than all these others. No. He's saying, I love you the best I can. And each time, Jesus tells Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And really what Jesus is saying here is, you love me? Show it by loving others, by caring for others. Jesus is telling Peter, yeah, you messed up. You messed up big time. You failed, but I am still going to use you. I haven't given up on you. We're starting over. We're starting over, Peter. This is a brand new beginning. And why does Jesus say that? Why does he say this is, this is, we're starting new? What happened since the time that Peter denied him? The cross, right? The cross, the death and the resurrection. The risen Jesus is now there to restore their relationship 
broken by Peter's failure. And friends, that same risen Jesus wants to do the same thing for you. You can have that new beginning. You can have that fresh start. You don't have to live with the shame and the regret and the reminders of your failures because, friends, all of your sin, all of your failure, past, present, and future, it all went to the cross with Jesus. Paul reminds us in Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen? Friends, the risen Jesus is here today. And he's offering a new beginning. He's offering a restored relationship. And I know that <laughs> there are some who are going to say, yeah, but you know what? You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea how much sin and, and, and nastiness and, and, and junk is in my past. You have no idea how bad I've been. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I want you to listen to this. Listen to this. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Isn't that a beautiful thing? There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Jesus loves you and he wants to restore and renew your relationship with him and he wants to use you. It's, it's interesting that in verses 18 through 19, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. He says, your arms will be outstretched. And what he's telling Peter is, you're going to be crucified. And that had to send a bit of a chill down his spine, right? But you know what? It also assured him of a second chance. See, it was just a week or so prior that Peter denied Jesus so that he would not face the cross with Jesus. He would face that challenge again. And this time he wouldn't be a failure. But he would be faithful. He would be faithful. And tradition tells us that he was crucified. But he insisted, some traditions say, insisted on being crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way that Christ was. We don't know that to be true for a fact, but I wouldn't doubt it. And the key, really, is in verse 19. Because this is how Peter would glorify God. This is how he would glorify God. Peter's purpose was to glorify God. And friends, that is our purpose as well. And we glorify God in our death. Maybe not physical death, but maybe. 
We don't face persecution in this country like they do elsewhere. We don't face crucifixion for the name of Jesus. But is that really that far off? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know, friends, is that we glorify God every single day when we die to ourselves, when we die to our old way of living. Remember, we participate in Christ's death and resurrection. And as a result, we live life differently. We follow after him and live in obedience to him as best we can, knowing that we're going to fail, but knowing, too, that Jesus is there to restore our relationship. See, Jesus wants to take your past failure, and he wants to use it to transform you. He wants to use it for his glory. Our past doesn't have to be an anchor. Our past can be a monument to God's grace. So here's the end of it, friends. Jesus is asking us all a question today. Even even if you've come here today with shame and regret and failure in your past, there's something that you just can't get over, something you just can't forget. He's still asking you this question. And the question isn't, you know, do you promise to never sin again? You know, do you promise to come to church every week? Even though you should. But the question isn't even, do you promise to never fail me again? The question is simple. Do you love me? The risen Jesus is here asking you that question. Don't run the other way. Don't try to hide in your shame and your regret. Do like Peter did. Humble yourself before Jesus. Go toward him. Trust in him to restore your relationship with him. Leave your shame and your regret right here. Right here at the cross where it belongs. And follow him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we praise you. Lord, we thank you for the restored relationship that we can have through the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much that you know our hearts. You know that we're failures. Yet you continue to love us. You continue to serve us. You continue to pursue us. And you continue to seek a restored relationship. And Lord, if there's anybody here that's struggling with with that shame or regret, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts right now. Lord, we know that you're pursuing each and every one of us. We pray that we would respond by moving toward you and seeking that restored relationship with you to bring you glory. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.